Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a Big Heads Media Podcast. Tonight, it's either the most famous haunted house in the country or the most infamous haunted house in the country. It's Amityville, New York, Part 1. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. And welcome to episode 9 of season 3 of the show of Small Town Secrets. And also the first part of the two-part season 3 finale. And I would like to apologize up front for it being a week late. Um, I I had an opportunity to go do some socially distant responsible hiking uh, last week. So I took up the offer and went ahead and got the fresh air and got the miles under under the old belt 
and uh, had a good time. But now I'm back and ready to finish up the season and really ready to do this show. Excited to get back in the chair. Made a lot of upgrades to the studio over the past week. We've got some uh, some nice studio monitor speakers ready to go for when I get into some more music and for when I'm editing. If I don't want to use the headphones all the time, which is great. Got a nice fat hard drive to back up all these episodes and all this other stuff on in case it ever uh, takes a poop and I need to restore some stuff. Uh, what else we got going on here? We've got a nice new hub that is actually now charging the MacBook and all that great stuff. So, you know, got a new keyboard, got a new mouse. It's really starting to feel like a studio, like a really good office space now. And, uh, you know, can't wait to start working with some stuff. But enough about that. Enough about bragging about all the crap that I bought. Um, let's get on with the show. Uh, so like I said, tonight is going to be Amityville, New York, part one. And I think I'd be hard-pressed to find anyone that doesn't know about this. They may not know all the facets and all the details, but I think I could go up to nine out of ten people on the street and go, Amityville, and they would go, New York, and they would know what I was talking about. But in case, for some reason, you haven't, if this is your first exposure to Amityville, New York, it is, we're going to be talking about a house. Uh, the house used to be 112 Ocean Avenue. It is now a slightly different address. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but... Uh, if you click the Zillow link in the show notes, you'll find out pretty easily what it is. Uh, and it's it's probably the most infamous, or the most famous, depending on which way you look at it, haunted house in the country, if not possibly the world. Um, so it's a great topic, and I wanted to discuss on the show because I've always been fascinated with it, one. And two is because it's really two sides of the coin of this show. One side is a very, still to this day, very mysterious true crime uh, story. And the other side of the coin is, you know, a, a terrifying haunted house tale that take place in a small town. So it's quite frankly, the perfect topic for the show. But here we are. So I'm going to break it up over the episodes in the two parts, kind of four sections, like I've been known to do for the season finales. Tonight we're going to talk about uh, the DeFeo family and the DeFeo murders. So kind of part one of this episode is going to be the murders, and then part two will be the trial and the aftermath and some speculation and some, you know, ideas and some theories thrown out. And then next week... We're going to talk about Lutz's and the haunting and the aftermath of that. So next week, I'm going to see how it goes. I'm going to try to fast track the next episode and get it out next weekend to make up for the week that I missed. But that's, uh, that is stipulated on two things. One, I have an interview I have to do with someone that actually knew... George Lutz, and if you know anything about Amityville, then you know who George Lutz is, and we'll get into it on the second episode. That's not a big hurdle. I think that's going to happen this week, in the coming week. 
uh, pretty easily. But then the other thing is I have a book on order that I want to read to use for that to for that episode. And if I get it in time, it's only it's not a very long book. It's only like a hundred some pages. I can sit down and probably take an afternoon and read it, get some notes from it, and get it get it ready for the show. If I get it in time and I can read through it in time, uh, then I might be able to actually release an episode next week instead of two weeks from now, get everything caught up and uh, end season three that way. But it's all it's really it's really all hinging on that little book. If that book shows up in the next few days, if not, it it'll be the normal you know, every other week release schedule. But you know what? That's about, it's about all I've got. Uh, keep it, keep check on social media, uh, especially Twitter at SDS cast. And I'll keep everyone updated on if I can get the show out early or not, but we're going to go ahead. And I have a couple of promos this week. The first one is from, uh, another big heads media podcast, Chibi's playground. And the other is just from a fellow podcaster. This one is, uh, Murder in the Rain. Uh, so take a listen, check them out, and when we come back, we'll be talking about Amityville Part 1, The DeFeo Murders. Hey guys, Mike here, a friend from the podcast of Chibli's Playground. It's a podcast about board games, pasta, and a whole lot of fun. You can find out about sweet new games that are coming out, sweet old games that have been out for a while, and the best favorites. Who knows? Someone might even get a golden hoodie. Matt, tell them where you can find them. Uh, you can find us at uh, Chibli's Podcast at Twitter and Instagram. And also you can find us on uh, Chibli'sPlayground.com. Wow, you guys nailed it. Good job, good job. Nailed it. I got an IMDb page, so... Calling all true crime fans, murderinos, crime junkies, and wine coven members. Have you listened to Murder in the Rain yet? Murder in the Rain is a true crime podcast based in the Pacific Northwest, focused on the local cases that make us the notorious home of bizarre crimes and serial killers. I'm your host, Alicia Holland. And I'm your host, Emily Rowney. Josh, I forgot. I forgot. I was. In each episode, we will cover a case to bring you all the details of the crime. We often feature interviews with people close to the cases, including authors, victims, doctors, and detectives. Most content is dark and not suitable for young or sensitive listeners, but we do try to lighten the mood by providing a blooper reel at the end of every single episode. Trust me, you'll love it. Check us out today, and if you like us, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and leave us a review. Our website, MurderInTheRain.com, has additional content, podcast feeds, discount codes to some of our sponsors, and an interactive map with locations for each episode. The coffee is dark. The night is dark. The story begins now. That was a terrible, that was the worst intro ever done. But we're going to gloss over it. We're going to move on. Amityville is actually a small village that is part of Babylon, New York. According to legend, when the settlers wanted to establish a post office, they needed a name. A meeting of the town became a heated debate, and someone yelled out, What this meeting needs is some Amity. It would seem that Amityville started with just a hint of bedlam, something that would carry on. Years later, 
Ronald DeFeo would murder his entire family under mysterious circumstances. However, that's just the beginning of the Amityville saga. The colonial-style 3,600-square-foot home was built in 1927. Eventually, this beautiful home, complete with waterfront property and a boathouse, became the home of the DeFeo family. Ronald DeFeo Sr., his wife Louise, and their five children, Don, Mark, Allison, John, and the oldest, Ronald DeFeo Jr. Ronald, a.k.a. Big Ronnie, married Louise Briganti in 1950. Louise's parents at first did not approve of the marriage and for a short time cut ties with the couple. That was until the eldest son, Ronald Butch DeFeo, was born on September 26, 1951. Louise's parents were well off, and with the arrival of Butch, things seemed to have settled down for the family. Big Ronnie was given a job at one of his father-in-law's car dealerships. Over the years, the other DeFeo children would arrive, and the large family would eventually move into an upscale part of Amityville at 112 Ocean Avenue. They moved there from Brooklyn, I believe. The move to the new house, as well as the $50,000 family portraits Ronnie Sr. had commissioned, led many to wonder where Big Ronnie was getting all of his money. Many speculated he was part of the mob, but probably in reality, it was all coming from his father-in-law, Michael Briganti Sr. And actually, later on when I was like reading some stuff, I did see a little tidbit that uh, Ronnie had like a cousin, I think, or a brother who did have some ties to uh, some pretty big crime families in New York. So maybe there's more to that than we know, but it's it's pretty much known, I think, nowadays that that his father-in-law was paying for a lot of stuff. The DeFeos were not without their troubles, however. Big Ronnie was a known abuser, most notably towards his oldest son and his wife. Louise even left Big Ronnie in 1962 after the birth of their son, Mark. In order to get back into his wife's good graces, he co-wrote a song entitled The Real Thing, along with jazz singer Joe Williams. It even appeared in one of Joe Williams' records. Even though life seemed good for Butch DeFeo on the outside, it was not. Not only was Butch routinely abused by his father, but also at school, as he was overweight. As time went on, Butch began lashing out at family and friends. His family tried to send him to therapy, but it didn't stick. Instead, plan B, was they gave him lavish gifts, uh, like a good job, at the car dealership, along with a car, a 1970 Buick Electra 225 in blue, to be exact, a speedboat, and a weekly allowance. He would use most of his money to purchase some guns, alcohol, and drugs, such as uh, LSD, mescaline, and heroin. None of this would help Butch, and it only seemed to fuel his increasingly odd behavior. One day on a hunting trip, with some friends, he threatened one of them with a gun, and then later denied it ever happening. Later, that same day, during a fight between his parents, he pointed a 12-gauge shotgun at his father and pulled the trigger. The gun malfunctioned and did not fire. Needless to say, it ended the argument and stunned his father. He also allegedly stole $19,000 
from the car dealership. Butch's issues would come to a head on the night of September 13, 1974. Ronald Butch DeFeo burst through the doors of nearby Henry's Bar, which was very nearby. I think it was like on the corner of Ocean Avenue and another street. You've got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot. He then fell to his knees and began sobbing. Robert Bobby Kelsky, one of Butch's best friends, just happened to be at the bar that night. Bobby asked him if he wasn't sure that they were just sleeping. Butch replied he had seen them dead. Butch and Bobby, along with William, hold on here, Scordamaglia, the bar owner, Jesse Yozwat, John Alteriri, and Al Saxon all crammed themselves into Butch's Buick. Bobby drove the car to 112 Ocean Avenue. Bobby sped to the home and got there in less than a minute. As I said, it was like really, it was very close. Bobby then got out of the car and headed to the front door. He was warned that there might still be people in the house. He didn't care. Bobby knew the layout of the house well, so he took the lead as the men started to explore the dark interior. They first made their way to the master bedroom, the bedroom of Ronald Sr. and Louise. Bobby flipped the lights on and saw both of Butch's parents dead with gunshot wounds to the back. Overwhelmed by the scene, Bobby Kelsky started to faint and was led out by the other men. The grim exploration continued. The men from the bar then found Mark, 9, and his brother John, 12, dead in their beds as well. So actually, upon this kind of first uh, exploration by these guys, they didn't even find the three girls, like the other, like the girls. They didn't even find everyone dead. It was after this that Joe Yozwat called the police. When originally questioned by the police, Butch's alibi was that he could not sleep and decided to go into work early. He further offered up the explanation that local mob boss Louis Fellini may have exacted revenge of some bad work done by the dealership. However, when the police started searching the home, they found empty boxes of ammunition for DeFeo Jr.'s 35 caliber Marlin 336 rifle. Upon being confronted with this new evidence, Butch changed his story again. That's, t that's twice now if you're keeping track. He now claimed that Fellini and an accomplice put a gun to his head that morning, drug him from the house, and proceeded to murder his entire family. And I'm assuming, like, he posited that, like, I didn't use the gun. They found the gun and used the gun. That story didn't hold much water. Why not kill him as well? Like, why leave the witness? Seems weird. Eventually, Butch would confess to the murders, and this would be the beginning of of his ever-changing stories. So right there we have, we've laid the groundwork. That's what happened. That's, I mean, six people dead in a huge house. Uh, and it is a kind of a heartbreaking mystery, like just children and a wife and a husband dead at, at their son's hands. And there's, there's a lot really kind of to unpack. So the second part... We're going to get into the trial and his many changing stories and some of the suspected uh, just kind of weird inconsistencies and weird mysteries of the story. And I'm stalling because it's almost 3.15 a.m. 
And there it goes. That'll be really uh, relevant next episode. I just want to timestamp it in case we go back and listen and hear any any spookiness happen because of the time that it is. But going to do the boom. I'm going to take a little bit of a break. And we're going to come back. We're going to talk about the trial and all that great stuff that I just mentioned here in just a couple of seconds, actually. All right. Took a little break. Got a bottle of water. Ready to go for the second part. Uh, The trial and all of that is really where uh, some weird questions are asked. Some questions about weirdness, I guess maybe that's a better way to put it, are asked and some some just some strange stuff is brought up that we still don't really have answers to. So let's just get into it, shall we? Butch DeFeo's trial began on October 14th, 1975. DeFeo and his lawyer went with an insanity defense. DeFeo originally claimed that he had heard voices urging him to kill his entire family. This, coupled with some strange circumstances, such as all the family members were found on their stomachs, I think, maybe maybe not all of them, uh, with no visible signs of struggle. However, a crime scene photo of a bloody shoe in the hallway disputes that fact. And this, 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 this photo, like, so much stuff in both the DeFeo story and the Lutz story is very controversial. There are people that are like, no, 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 this shoe isn't even from the crime scene. The floorboards aren't the same as in the house. But if you look at other crime scene photos, you will see that the house multiple had multiple floorboards in different rooms, depending on which one you were in. So they posit, hey, this shoe was in the hallway. So someone got, and it was bloody, someone got shot in the hallway. So is it possible that the family was shot in other parts of the house and arranged on their bed and the house was cleaned up? Also, no one in town, or the family for that matter, reported hearing any gunshots, only the barking of the family dog. DeFeo used a Marlin Model 336 45 caliber, I may have said 35 caliber earlier and I apologize, hunting rifle. A shot from that gun would range in between 140 and 160 decibels. It's not exactly quiet. In fact, it's not it's not quiet at all. And that is the thing that's always stuck in my crawl. And as from what I can tell, it's like it's not like a myth. It's not a story. I think it's in court records that no one heard shots. You know, they always wonder like, how did a family, how did six people hear not hear a gunshot, not not do anything. Uh, they weren't drugged. A lot of people speculate that they were drugged, but you know, toxicology reports came back and said no, there wasn't anything in their system. But at the end of it, I'll get into some speculation. The insane defense was not the route DeFeo originally wanted to go. Butch's original lawyer, Jacob Springfield, had trouble getting certain documents and other evidence from the prosecution. Which seems weird to me because I always that, that feels like that's treading the edge of a Brady violation, which basically states that the prosecution has to turn over all of their information to the defense. They can't hold anything back that might be detrimental to their case. 
and that was around that that was around since the 60s so it was it was here it was it was a thing in 1975 uh, but the court also deemed that these documents were unnecessary they had no choice but to go with an insanity defense so they they were left kind of without anything left to do butch of course did not want to say to the court that he was insane and reportedly threatened to strangle his lawyer springfield this and the fact that his grandfather had already spent forty grand, forty thousand dollars on his defense up to that point, caused Butch's grandfather to withdraw his support. This forced DeFeo to get a court-appointed attorney. William Weber was appointed to him by the court. Before Weber was appointed, Butch's grandfather, Michael Briganti Sr., hired his friend and former New York City police detective to look into the case. This man's name was Herman Race. Race would go on to claim that he had found evidence of more than one gunman and more than one gun. In 2012, documentary filmmaker Ryan Katzenbach hired a team of divers. The divers found a handgun in the canal behind the house. I don't think it was directly behind the house. It was probably down, but there is kind of a canal that runs. That's the waterfront property. Butch did have a handgun. The holster was found by the police, but not the gun itself. Is it possible that the handgun found in the nearby canal was his? Sadly, it was too badly degraded to know for sure. They weren't able to get a good serial number or anything off of it. Weber asked for crime scene photos and police reports, which he got. However, he got them so late, he didn't have time to properly prepare and he didn't have a great time trying to get extensions from the judge either. Things really started to fall down around Butch. The original judge was replaced with a new one, and that was I think that was the whole reason why they didn't get more time. Uh, and then at trial, DeFeo couldn't quite pull off the acting needed to help his insanity plea. I believe he also went on to say that, like, during the night, oh, I was hearing voices, but uh, during the night that it happened, I wasn't hearing any voices. So he didn't do himself any favors. The jury saw right through it, and on November 21st, 1975, Ronald Joseph Butch DeFeo Jr. was found guilty on all six counts of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to 25 years to life for each of the six counts. To this day, Butch remains in prison, and over the years, he has changed his story multiple times, mostly in attempts to get parole. In 1990, he filed a 440 motion. In this motion, he stated that he and a friend were doing drugs in the basement when he heard a loud sound from upstairs. When Butch went to investigate, he found most of his family dead. His sister, the oldest sister, Don was upstairs with his gun. She seemed scared when she saw him since he wasn't supposed to be there. And after seeing what she had done, they got into an argument. Butch then wrestled the gun away from her and shot her dead. He also reiterated this story at his 1999 parole hearing. In 2000, author Rick Osana alleges that he interviewed DeFeo. In this interview, DeFeo claimed that it was a conspiracy between Don, his two friends, Bobby Kelsky, and Augie DeGenero, and DeFeo himself, of course. They were both being badly abused by their parents, Don and, and Ronald. Dawn herself was not allowed to go live with her boyfriend in Florida. They decided to kill their parents and run away. 
In the original plan, the siblings were spared. However, when Butch discovered that Don had killed the siblings in order to get rid of them as witnesses, Butch lost it, wrestled the gun away from her, and shot her as well. It must be noted that DeFeo, in a written letter to radio host Lou Gentile, said he uh, immediately walked out of the interview and gave Osan no useful information for his book. However, this is pretty much the same story that he kind of gave in his 2003 parole hearing, and I didn't get a chance to read Osana's book. Like I mentioned earlier, everything in this story seems controversial, and like one book is going to make other people mad, and another book is going to make other people mad. One documentary, another doc. It's it's like that with everything. This this story is a bit of a quagmire of people's ideas, and not all of them are great. So, just like so many other book, Osana's book is very kind of is very controversial to a lot of people. Um, I didn't read it. I didn't get a chance to read it. But his website for the book has a great timeline. It has pretty much all the facts of the case. I found two really good websites for the DeFeo murder. I've linked to them. Uh, his website and another one just called the Amityville Files. And both of these sites are chock full of court documents, transcripts of the parole hearings, transcripts of... Uh, why, what's his name, Joe, you know, the guy who called the police, his his uh, transcript of his 911 call, uh, crime scene photos, photos of the family, like the, the pictures of the elaborate $50,000 family portraits are on there. There's a lot of great information in his website and in the uh, Amityville Files website. So I did use that, but I didn't get a chance to read his book and kind of see what it was all about. And nowadays, DeFeo seems to be back just saying it was all Don's fault. She was behind it all, and he stopped her. Uh, Don's involvement has been pretty much debunked. Unburnt powder was found on her clothing. The defense and DeFeo originally tried to argue that this proved she shot a gun as well. However, ballistic expert Alfred de la Pena testified that powder exits from the muzzle, which just means that she was at the muzzle end of a gun, the medical examiner also stated that there was no evidence that she had been in any sort of struggle. Ronald DeFeo sits in Sullivan Correctional Facility in New York. He's 68 years old. And even though there was a conviction and the murders have been solved, there are still many mysteries as to what happened that night. How did a whole family of six people not wake up due to the ensuing carnage? Like I said, many have suggested that they had been drugged, no drugs were found. Uh, I don't know, tied up. Who knows? I'll get into some of the things that I might, I kind of have here going. Did DeFeo act alone? If he did, how did he manage to shoot six people by himself? Was it a conspiracy between DeFeo and others? Was Don DeFeo involved or not? So many, like, he just, he he's just out to try to get out of jail. Like, it's weird. He's been married a couple of times in jail and got people to help get him out, but He's changed his story here, there, everywhere. What, where are we at, like five times now? Uh, but nope, he's still there. And it just seems weird. So how could he have pulled this all off? This, the thing that I've always kind of found weird about this is that, and it kind of makes sense, like there doesn't seem to be a lot of investigation into the murder. And I guess if you had, it was it's it does seem very cut and dry. You have a guy who confessed to it all, 
to this day, still kind of confesses. Like, he said, you know, I shot Don. That was the only person that I killed. But I don't know. I was on drugs. I can't remember anything that night. And maybe that's true. But, like, I couldn't find or I've ever heard anything about, like, you know, time of death or, like, anything really. Like, you know, everyone just kind of assumes that they were shot. Like that evening, and then he immediately went to the bar. You know, but what if he didn't? What if he somehow got everyone rounded up during the day? You know, he, I mean, people allege that he had, uh, he had thrown out evidence in kind of big plastic bags. They had found one down by the canal where this gun was found in 2012. So, like, let me posit this. This is just pure speculation on my part. He didn't do it in the evening. He did it during the day. Uh, if you shoot a gun at night, people notice. If you shoot a gun during the day, that's easier to kind of forget. That could have been a car backfiring. That could have been somebody target practicing. I don't know. Like, out here, people will target practice. Like, I don't know if you could do that in, in the middle of Amityville. But... To me, I think during the day, some gunshots would be A, easier to cover up, and B, easier to forget by other people if they heard them. So what if he just got the entire family together, you know, tied them up or whatever, shot everybody, and then placed the bodies on on their beds and then destroyed, cleaned up some evidence, but obviously not all of it, and... But then I think, like, okay, that's elaborate. But then he doesn't get rid of the ammunition boxes. And maybe he thought, well, everyone knows the gun's in there. Like, just because I have empty ammo boxes doesn't mean I use, you know, whatever. He had the gun. He owned the gun. So it would it would make sense that he would have ammo boxes for it in the house. So maybe that's not that big of a deal. You know, so that's kind of what I wonder. Like, did he do it in the day? And then he waited and until the evening and then went to the bar because i think that he got to the bar at like 6 30 p.m like 6 30 in the evening you know so that that explains why maybe people didn't hear gunshots maybe that you know that kind of explains why the family didn't react to gunshots because maybe they were subdued and could not react to gunshots and you know he got that far and that was as far as it got maybe he was drug fueled but that's kind of what I always wonder because it's just not there. And maybe it is somewhere. I'm sure that if I could find, like, every court document and read through it, you could find that information. But to me, that's just, it just doesn't seem like they even bothered with it because they had the guy. And so why? Who cares about time of death? Who cares about this, that, and the other? When the, the guy is right there, he's confessed. We have an open and shut case. At least that was at the time in 1974, you know, so that, that kind of goes towards, I don't know, now I'm just kind of rambling here, but I don't think Dawn had anything to do with it, um, you know, maybe she might have known more than, than, but we'll, you know, we'll never know, because she's not around to defend herself, um, and then there's a couple of little things I didn't really get into, I did link them into the show notes if you want to uh, explore them on yourself. Like, there is kind of this great mystery of, and I guess I'll explain it here a little bit because I did read it, of the quote-unquote seventh murder. So, Rick Osana and 
a woman who alleges that her name is Geraldine DeFeo. I didn't really get into this because I think it's been debunked. Like she alleges like she married Butch in like 1970 and they had a child and then they got divorced in like 1993. But if you look at their divorce records, it says that they met and were married in like 1985 while he was in jail and then got divorced in 1983. So her story has always been a little sketchy and Rick Osana's book, The Night the DeFeos Died, kind of leans heavily on, like, her story and things that she's said. But So I think that's why it's pretty decisive, is that some people just don't believe her. Uh, but, you know, I've left links for that. You know, you can go to that website, you can grab his book, you can read it and figure it out on what you think about it. But anyway, they went and, you know, he wanted to get crime scene pictures and they denied him and they denied him and they denied him. And they finally gave him access. He wanted to go. He had copies of all the pictures. But he wanted to go with his copies and cross-check all the real pictures to see, to make sure he had all of them. And they found one in the rolls of film, in the negatives and all this junk, of another victim. Same thing. Shot in the back on a bed, which looked very similar to a bed, I think, that was, like, in the basement. And they were like, who is this? There's no evidence of this. Well, who is this person? You know, is it possible? Like, we're talking about, like, it's not like it is now where you can take a picture, whatever. We're talking about a roll of film. It was in the middle of the negative. It wasn't on the beginning. It wasn't on the end. So it was kind of, they were like, well, there's no way that this is, like, from another crime scene. But that's actually, like, I, I'll let you guys go and read it. It's, it's very interesting. But it turns out it was from another crime scene, and they kind of found this lost picture to someone who was murdered in very much the same way, just kind of coincidentally. And I thought that very interesting, but, you know, it doesn't really, it wasn't, like, pertaining to the story, so I didn't put a lot of notes in it. But there is a link in the show notes where you can go and check out Osana's website. Like I said, it's got a lot of great factual information on there. You can get his book from there and see what that's all about. But you know what? That would not be the end of the story. Not by a long shot. 16 months later, in December of 1975, so like a month after he was uh, convicted, the Lutz family moved into 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York. Their story would turn the Amityville murders into the Amityville haunting. And that's what we're going to get into on the next episode. Some wild and crazy stuff that I'm sure a lot of you have heard about, but maybe some of you haven't. And that's why, I, you know, this is, once again, this kind of goes up in that category of a story that I just have to tell. But we're going to take a break, an intermission. Uh, I think I'm going to play Carpenter, which I don't know if I've ever said that's the title, but that is the title and of the song. I've played it before, but it's called Carpenter. You will find out uh, why right here in a second. And then we'll come back. We'll do the local headlines. And then I've got some uh, interesting Reddit experiences, stories from Reddit to share for uh, your small town secret. And we'll finish up this episode. So hold on.
Okay, uh, the first news story we have is from the Anama Alien, and it is video captures glowing UFO flying out of active Mexican volcano. A security camera captured video of a mysterious glowing object coming out of an active volcano in Mexico. According to a UFO researcher, the object may be an alien spacecraft coming from an underground base. The volcano, depicted in a YouTube video posted by user Louis-André Japerson, is a Popocatapetl, thank you, uh, YouTube pronunciation videos, which is located in various states across Mexico. Local sources suggest that the volcano has shown increased signs of activity in the last few weeks and months. The footage was initially intended to track the volcano's activities due to its current condition. A bright oval-shaped object can be seen flying over the top of the volcano in one part of the original video. Judging by the video, the mystery object seemed to have flown out of the crater of the volcano. The object continued to travel further away from the volcano while retaining its brightness. UFO expert Scott Waring of ET Database stated that the unidentified object may be an alien spacecraft. He declared that this is further proof that the alien base does exist and that the aliens living there have very large spacecraft. Since the entire crater of the volcano is 600 meters across, Warren concluded, or calculated, that the object may, may be about 50 meters wide. And I've linked it into show notes. There was a video. I think it might be taken down because I'm getting that weird gray YouTube three-dot icon for when videos aren't there anymore. But check it out. There's at least a picture of it. Uh, kind, of a, kind of an interesting photo, an interesting video if you can still see it. But our next one is from, it's from uh, the Daily Mirror. And I think I said in a, uh, an episode a while ago that I wasn't going to use Daily Mirror stories because their website is so resource heavy. But I lied. Here we are. Does this one have an author? I do not see one. Oh, yes, I do. By Luke Matthews. So this is from the mirror.co.uk. And uh, it's No One Wants Free Haunted House After Former Owners Shares creepy backstory. A home is up for grabs completely free of charge in Louisiana in the U.S., but any potential owners are being put off by the chilling stories of former residents and locals. The owners of a home compared to the Amityville Horror House, and I didn't, I didn't mean that, that is a coincidence, that is a synchronicity, are struggling to give it away for free as locals spread stories about it being haunted. The four-bedroom home in Louisiana was built in 1930 and has gained a spooky reputation, meaning no one has dared to move in despite not having to spend a penny to make it theirs. One former resident claims that the home is haunted by her great-grandmother, who is well known to stir cooking left unattended in the kitchen and move the pots around. Sylvia McLean, a co-owner of McLean Investments, took to Facebook to share snaps of the home in a bid to convince someone to move in and restore the home so they could build a new property on the land. I think that's why it's free, is because it's just like, I don't know, dilapidated. I wanted to go to the Facebook link on the Mirror website, but when you click the Facebook link, it just takes you to another part of the Mirror website that tells you what Facebook is. So I couldn't find those snapshots. But I'm wondering if it's just like a hollowed out 
dead house, and that's why they're giving it away for free. But I don't know, because the picture that they have in the article shows a pretty new, uh, pretty massive air conditioning unit outside. So, free house? I don't know. Maybe I'll try to find them snapshots. Maybe I'll move to Louisiana. But I digress. However, it appears potential suitors were put off by the flood of comments below from ex-residents and visitors who reported the creepy goings-on they claimed to have experienced. Sylvia admitted that she heard all the stories about it being haunted by an old woman and said former owners had even had ghost hunters in to banish her. But she remains hopeful that the history of the house can be saved, and it's free for anyone to take on the move to another location for restoration. Aha! There's the hitch. It's free, but you've got to take it and move it somewhere else and then restore it. You can't just take it and live there. Former resident Don Valet Duclau reclaims that the house is occupied by the spirit of her great-grandmother Adele, a four-foot, nine-inch woman who lived until about 90 and was known for meddling in the kitchen. Don's family owned the 160-acre plot the house was built on from 1860, and her great-grandmother died in the front room in 1967. Don, whose family moved out in the 80s, said, We believe Adele is the ghost, but she's not menacing at all. She was probably like four feet nine inch and weighed about a hundred pounds. She lived to be almost 90 and she was always digging in the pots. Like when you have something on the stove and someone goes in and looks in the pot and stirs it around. She was well known for that. And when we lived there, and so when we lived there, we used to hear her all the time jangling the pots when we heard something on the stove. You could hear somebody picking up the lid, but there was nobody in the kitchen. And they actually have like a picture of her there and uh, some other family pictures. Sylvia said there are a lot of rumors surrounding the house, with some really cute stories about it being haunted. One suitor had offered to take the home, but had a change of heart when they discovered it would cost about 64,000 pounds to move and reassemble. Keep in mind, this is a UK website, so it's in pounds. Sylvia believes that the two-story, 2,400-square-foot property was kept close by. It would cost about half that. However, locals comparing it to the notorious house in Amityville, where a man shot and killed six members of his family, which everyone should know the story by that by now, isn't making it any easier. The post on Facebook got hundreds of responses, with one writing, Yes, it is haunted. I experienced three things there and could not be explained by my friend that lived there more than that. It's kind of a weird statement. We actually experienced one together, and we still talk about it. Another replied, most likely the haunting will stay attached to the land and whoever lives in the new home they build will deal with it. A third said they visited the home and reported a lot of weird noises in the ceilings and walls. Sylvia is worried that she may not be able to find someone to take on the project due to the cost after any interest following the Facebook post quickly fell away. She said it's probably going to need to be taken apart in order to move it and unless it's going to be really close, it's bittersweet. We know somebody will have a nice place with some historical value and a little bit of a story, but it's a cheaper but it's a chapter of our family that we'll be moving on. We probably won't tear the house down. We'll probably either restore it or find a place for it unless we have to. Have to tear it down, I'm assuming. And our last one, of course, is a great Bigfoot story. This is from hold on here. This is from oh, there's a big ad in the front of it. This is from the Vernon Morning Star. And I'm not, I don't think it says in the article, but I looked it up. This is in British Columbia in Canada, near a town called Lumbee. This story is by Jennifer Smith. It is entitled Bigfoot, 
footprint near Lumby examined. So let me scroll down real quick. A strange footprint, thought to be that of Bigfoot, is getting some attention from wildlife experts. Sarah McRan was at Shuswap Falls near Lumby Sunday, April 12th, when she noticed a large print in the dirt which she recognizes from previous encounters. This is not an animal print, and I wouldn't say it's a man print either, said McRain. McRan. I have actually seen a Bigfoot before in 2018, and last summer I had a bunch of UFOs follow me back from the border, and I have plenty of these photos as well, as they were all the way from uh, Kelowna. I think she was saying that she saw UFOs from uh, Kelowna to to Lumbee or the other way around. I think it's how it's worded kind of weird, but I think that's what she's trying to say. But one local wildlife expert is skeptical and says tracking involves having two or three footprints, not just one. Just having a footprint is very difficult, said Pete Wise, owner of Wise Wildlife Control Services. Conservation officer Tanner Beck questions the footprint. Hard to tell, but it doesn't look like wildlife, he said, suggesting it could be an old shoe print. As a Vernon search and rescue member, and it is his business, Wise spends a lot of time in the outdoors. I've spent my entire life in the bush, said Wise, who has been trapping since the 50s and has never seen anything resembling a Bigfoot. I'm not saying it's not here. I've got buddies who swear they've seen them, but what did you see? For him, seeing is believing, but the same goes for McRan. Whether the footprint really is that of a Bigfoot or not, McRan hopes the topic is a nice distraction from all the coronavirus crisis news coming to so many of us. Thought it would lighten the moods, she said. And I am looking at the footprint and I I mean it is a shoe print but I I don't know if there's supposed to be a shoe print beside it because you do kind of see a shoe print and then beside it you kind of see some toes so maybe oh wait 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 I'm putting this together now it's very loose gravel or not gravel it's very loose dirt so I think that's what I'm seeing like so no I do see toes and one print um it's interesting the, the ground is very loose. It's not like wet dirt or anything, so it's hard to see if there are any dermal ridges or any real detail to it. But once again, linked in the show notes so you can take a pic- take a picture. Take a look at that picture. And that has been this week's local headlines. I'm uh, going to do a boom. And when we come back, I've got uh, a time slip or possibly abduction story. And then a very cool story about some strange lights in the neighborhood and some uh, even stranger beans. Both of these stories are from Reddit, so we'll get into those in just a little bit. So the first Reddit story that we have for My Small Town, Your Small Town Secrets is by I Drop My Avocado. AKA Maya, she told me. It's actually kind of funny. Uh, I don't know if either one of them listened to the show. Like, I just kind of found these and asked they use them. And the, f- the other person said they might have heard of the show. But they both sent me pronunciations. She, she, she told me how to pronounce her name. And the other, the other user told me how to pronounce the town. So it's almost like, even though they've never listened to the show, they somehow subconsciously know that I'm really bad at pronouncing names of towns and names of people sometimes. It just kind of made me chickle. But this is uh, Maya's story. So, 
I have to add that at this time, I was somewhere around 10 years old. My brother, our friend, and I started a car wash at our dad's house out of boredom. So my friend and I went around asking if anyone wanted us to wash their car. We only really went up to somewhere near six or seven houses or less and wound up in our little cul-de-sac. My friend started walking up to the last house in the cul-de-sac and I immediately got bad vibes from it. I told her as such and she promised it would be the last house and told me to just stay on the sidewalk if I was getting freaked out. I watched her speak to a rather normal looking person and all went well until she finally walked away. When she came back, she told me that they'd think about it and we just started walking away. But I still couldn't shake the feeling. After we got a little further away from the house, I turned back toward it. I could feel someone watching me. Lo and behold, there was a woman in the window with her eyes locked on us. I remember her so well. She had tan skin, long straight black hair, and a vibrant pink robish dress. I tapped my friend on the shoulder, and when she saw the woman, we both took off running. Now this is where things get crazy. I'd say that we were only out at most half an hour, and our house was only a few houses away from theirs. We walked while kind of laughing at our own skittishness, and found my brother and dad waiting in the kitchen. They immediately started going crazy at us for being out so late. My brother says that he went around the entire neighborhood twice looking for us, and my dad said we were gone for five hours. We argued that we could only have been out for 15 minutes to half an hour, and they told us the sun was starting to set. We were like, hold up, the sun is still up, but we go outside and it's almost dark. I haven't been able to figure out what happened since, and every once in a while I remember and I wonder if that woman might have been something more than human. And she kind of questions like, was this some sort of abduction scenario or a time slip? I would have to say, I think this is kind of a false memory, like an abduction, maybe an alien abduction where they have implanted this memory of you going to this house and seeing this woman to cover up a possible alien abduction. Uh, which sometimes happens, you get a false memory, or a screen memory is a better term for it. But that was a different kind of screen memory story than you hear a lot, or a different kind of abduction story than you hear, and that's why I really kind of dug it. This next story is from a, an anonymous Reddit user. This took place in a town called Eva, Alabama. Okay, so I'm going to give you a nutshell version of this the best I can, because it's kind of long. I apologize for the length of this, but to give it context, I have to give it a lot of detail. So this is by no means the only encounter story, just probably the weirdest. No, it's the weirdest, I'd say without a doubt. My home is next door to a friend's whom I grew up with. His parents live across the road from him and Caddy Corner to me. There's a field in between my friend's house and mine. I'm telling you all this because location and home placements become relevant soon. So my neighbor's oldest daughter started messing with a Ouija board. I don't know if that is what started all this, as we had incidents in the past, but all this peculiar phenomenon that I'm talking about happened after. I tried to tell her she didn't need to mess with it, that she didn't understand the extent of things she was attempting to contact. She's about 14 and didn't listen. 
I know people play with them often, but I personally believe that they can let things in that you don't want. Anyway, a few weeks after this, my neighbor's stepson saw a light shining in his bedroom window. He went outside to investigate and found nothing. The light began to make an appearance in all three of the houses I mentioned. My neighbor's, his parents across the road, and mine. My mom, I'm grown, but had to live with her because of a seizure disorder that I have and can't control. Says one night, I see a light. She said it looked like a flashlight through her window, but shining on the ceiling. I went out to investigate, quite pissed off because I thought someone was messing with my mom. I couldn't find anyone, so I called the cops. Keep in mind, this has been going on for a week so or so at all three houses. The deputy shows up and takes me around with him investigating, then makes a very interesting point. There was dew on the grass. Even though it was night and my footprints were the only ones visible, Interesting and strange, I thought, but my neighbor's mom started seeing this light every night in her bedroom. She sleeps on one end of the house and her husband on the other because he has to get up very early for work. So every time she looks out the window, there's nothing to be seen. She also starts to see what looks similar to a laser pointer doing the same shining through the window onto the ceiling thing. It apparently was not exactly like a laser pointer, but very similar. Now here's where things really start to get strange. My neighbor was in his garage and saw the laser pointer on the wall of his garage. This was at night, and he was out in the garage smoking a cigarette. He steps outside and sees nothing, walks back into his garage, and it's back on the wall. Then he says it's spread out and morphed into a weird, ancient-looking religious image, like something out of ancient Eastern religions. He said it was just like maybe a Buddhist religious image. He didn't describe it really any better than that. So fast forward to a few days. His mom has still been seeing stuff, the lights, and the laser-like image, continually, every night. So he texts me and asks me to sit, him, sit with him in the shadows outside of his house and watch his mom's house. Her bedroom is facing his yard. We sat out there for about an hour or so and were actively watching her house for anything whatsoever. Lights, movement, etc. We see nothing and she texts him saying the lights are shining in her window. We saw nothing at all. So we take off to her yard and walk behind her shed, where the lawnmowers are, to get a better look. And on the way to the shed, he spins around and says, Man, do you smell that? I did. I smelled something burning, like burning leaves mixed with sulfur. We looked around the shed and towards the main part of the yard slash lawn, and there's a street light at the house right next door to them, so we have a good view of her lawn from this angle. We saw that there was a haze-slash-fog in her yard only. We thought that maybe someone had been burning something, but it was strange that it was only in her yard. We spoke about this for literally about ten seconds behind the shed, and he says, Hey, the smell is gone. I realized that he was right, and we looked around the corner of the shed, and the fog was completely gone. This would not happen in ten seconds. Well, about a week later, his mom is getting fed up with the nightly light show, and instead of looking at her bedroom window like usual and finding nothing, she starts looking out of other windows. She gets to her living room, and she noticed that at my house, keep in mind I'm catty corner across the road from her, that there is a fog behind my house. She said that in the woods behind my house, there are woods like 30 feet or so behind the house, hadn't extended into the yard. She said that it was a, that it was dimly backlit as well, not brightly, but noticeably. Okay, so here's where things get weird, I think is what he meant to type. She says that at this point, 
four or five strange translucent figures come out of the fog into my yard, right outside my bedroom, by the way, and into the field between mine and my neighbor's house. She said that they were human-shaped, roughly, but very strange-looking. She did not go into very much detail about their features because she couldn't see the features very well from where she was. She said they looked somewhat like a hologram, but not exactly. I'm not sure what she means by that. She couldn't fully describe their appearance. She said they came from the fog haze and into the field, and that they glided over the ground without taking steps. She also said that they kept getting in the group and bending over, squatting down, kneeling to the ground, and doing something. She didn't have any clue what they were doing, but it made her to think of digging. So they glide across the field, across the road, and through her yard, past her house, towards the barn in her woods. She said that every time she saw them pass by her house, the lights would happen on her ceiling in her room. She said that they made the strange journey back and forth a total of five times that night, all one time after the other. That's basically it, and I just don't know what to make of it. This story really uh, captured my interest because I don't know quite what to make of it either. We've got an Ouija board, and we have strange beings coming out of the fog, which kind of sound alien-like, which is not unheard of. You know me. I kind of think that all this stuff is somehow connected. I think that if given the right opportunity, you probably could summon aliens or some sort of dimensional being with the Ouija board if you were so inclined or stumbled upon the right the right thing. But uh, it just, it was a different in a way, and he described everything pretty pretty good. And it's not his only story. We might actually have him on like as an interview interview later, because he said he had a couple more. And if they're anything like this, I'm sure they're going to be perfect fodder for the show. But I liked both of those. Both of those were really great stories that I found tonight, actually, and just was able to throw them into the show. Uh, but that's going to do it, I think, for uh, Your Small Town Secrets. All right, so that's going to about do it for episode 3.09 of the show, Amityville Part 1 in the bag. I just want to let everyone know that if you have a story you want to share from your small town, it could be uh, a weird experience, a UFO, a Bigfoot, a haunting, a ghost, uh, some true crime stuff, or just some interesting history. Uh, there's a bunch of ways you can get it to me. Uh, you, can, you can get on social media. I am most active on Twitter. That is at STScast. Facebook is the same thing at STScast, and Instagram is the different one. It is STScast.gram, so you can get on there, shoot me a story. If you want to set up uh, an interview via Skype, uh, we can do that. If you just want to be like, hey, here's a new story from town, read that, I can do that as well. Uh, we can pretty much do whatever, however we want to get the story out, we can do it. Uh, if you want to check out the website, please do. You will find links to this show every other show, as well as all the sources I've used, pictures for every episode. There is also on the website, at the bottom of the main page, there is a submission form that you can email me your experience if you would like to do that. But what else is on the website? Uh, all the links to everything is on there. All the social media, the YouTube link for the show, the Reddit link to the, the subreddit that we have for the show. All of that is on there. That's all at the bottom of the page, too, at every page. And uh, there is a link for the merch store. You can grab a coffee mug. You can grab a shirt, a sticker, all of that great stuff. But 
I'm going to try. I'm going to try really hard to hopefully that book shows up earlier than Amazon's saying it's going to show up, which has been the case lately with all the craziness going on. And um, they say that it's going to, you know, it's going to, it takes more than two days, but it doesn't take as long as, as they're saying. But hopefully I get it and I can read through it and I can kind of get this episode, the next episode out early to make up for uh, the week that I kind of took off and we can get back on schedule and get an episode out early to everyone and finish up this season because season four is going to be, it's going to be magnifique. Some great stories and some great new stuff coming. Uh, but that is it. That is the show. I am done. going to upload this and get it out to everybody. So until next time, remember, every town has a secret. What is yours? up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.